Hey, good morning. Welcome to Central Assembly on another Sunday morning. Uh, and it's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I think that means a lot more than, than just a day off work tomorrow. Uh, I think Memorial Day is very significant. We so appreciate all of our veterans. We appreciate those that have served in the past, are serving now. We have uh, a couple that are deployed uh, right now from Central Assembly. We appreciate our veterans. Uh, and we think today and we remember today uh, those that have paid the ultimate price uh, for our freedom. So we're grateful for our, for our veterans on this Memorial Day weekend. Well, the service that we, the series that we wrap up today is called Jesus in the Old Testament. It's dealt with both types and shadows that prefigure Christ, as well as actual pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. In the five previous parts, we've had three types of Jesus. We had David defeating Goliath. That was a type of Jesus. Noah's Ark was a type of Jesus. And the ram sacrificed in the stead of Isaac was a type of Jesus. We've also had two theophanies, some would call them Christophanies, which are bodily manifestations of Jesus before he was born. Those were the fourth man in the fiery furnace from Daniel chapter 3, and Jacob wrestling with God from Genesis 32 uh, from last week. This week, we could be dealing with either. Some believe the topic of our story was actually Jesus in the Old Testament, while others see him as a person prefiguring Jesus. We first encounter him in Genesis 14, and you can turn there in your Bible, and, and also turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and keep your thumb there. Uh, you know, a, a sermon like this, unless you're following along, it's going to be difficult uh, to stay connected. I encourage you to open your Bible and to read along with me. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a mysterious Bible figure whose name means king of righteousness. Now that alone is significant because righteousness is what you need to attain heaven. When we think of what we need to be saved, we tend to think in terms of faith or repentance. We, we think we need to receive Jesus into our heart or pray the sinner's prayer or confess our sins. But all of that would be incorrect. What we need to be saved is righteousness. Those other things are what we do to attain righteousness. We need righteousness, and Melchizedek was king of righteousness. Listen, there is a holy and perfect God in heaven whose nature is so intensely pure, so violently flawless, so forcefully perfect that our sinful nature would be consumed in his presence. That's why no man can see the full onslaught of God's glory and survive. It's like putting a snowball in a wood stove. We cannot be in the 
unbridled, we cannot be in the presence of the unbridled nature of God until that day when our bodies are in a glorified and eternal state. Our nature and God's nature as it stands today are incompatible. In order then to be saved, we need a righteousness that we cannot achieve on our own. It's a righteousness we can only attain by faith. Romans 10, 3 and 4 will leave you with a lot to think about. If you are religious, these verses can turn your world upside down. Uh, Romans 10, verse 3 Speaking of law keepers now, speaking, when Paul wrote this, he was speaking of the the Judaizers. He said, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Our story is about Melchizedek, king of righteousness. In Genesis 14, where we pick up the story, a confederacy of kings and their band of marauders were out raping and pillaging. Apparently, this is what they did on the weekends back then. And in verse 11 in Genesis 14, it says, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, which is a great King James word. It means provisions. And they went their way. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son. So Abraham's nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. If you remember from Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot had separated because their servants were squabbling, and Lot chose to live in Sodom. Verse 13 of Genesis 14, And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, and these were confederate with Abraham, it says. He, so in other words, this man that escaped from these marauders that had raided Sodom was on Abraham's side, and he tells Abraham what happened to Lot and his family. On a side note, here in verse 13, we have the first use of the word Hebrew in the Bible. It derives from the name Eber, E-B-E-R, who was an ancestor of Abraham, uh, mentioned previously in Genesis 10. Verse 14 of Genesis 14 says, When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them. Interesting to me that Abraham had servants trained for battle, 318 of them. Uh, Even with all that's written and recorded about Abraham, this is not an aspect of him that we see any other place in Scripture. This is Abraham's only war. Verse 15, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and he smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So you go to Damascus, take a left. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Now take note of this, verse 17. 
And the king of Sodom, that's where Lot lived, went out to meet Abraham after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Laomer and all the kings that were with him in the valley of Shavah, which is the king's dale. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. Verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abraham, gave Melchizedek tithes of all. Something that's easy to miss here as we read this is Abraham is met by two kings as he returns from his victory. One is the king of Sodom, in verse 17, an idolater. The other is Melchizedek, in verse 18, king of Salem. Salem means peace. It's a form of the word shalom, which many of you know means peace in Hebrew. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, king of peace. Salem is also the ancient name for Jerusalem. Salem, again, meaning peace. Jerusalem, meaning habitation of peace. Melchizedek is king of Jerusalem. Abraham seems to almost dismiss the idolater from Sodom, but he makes a big deal out of his encounter with Melchizedek. So who is this Melchizedek who brought forth bread and wine to Abraham? We jump to the New Testament and we find Hebrews 7 has a lot to say about this Melchizedek. Verse 1 of Hebrews 7 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So here we learn in verse 1 of Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek is a priest. Verse 2, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek is both priest and king. He's king of righteousness and king of peace. And Abraham brings him a tithe of the spoil of the battle. Hebrews 7 continues about Melchizedek in verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Abideth, and he abideth as a priest continually. Here it says Melchizedek was without descent. He was without genealogy. Now think about it. In a culture where this stuff was of vital importance, there was no record of his father, his mother, his birth, or his death. Unheard of. There was no record of his beginning. There was no record of his end. It reminds me of Micah 5.2 where we read about Jesus. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There is no record of the beginning or the end of both Jesus and Melchizedek. Jesus was without beginning and without end. 
And whether it's literally true of Melchizedek as a theophany or just figuratively true as a type, either way, it points to Jesus. Verse 3 of Hebrews 7. It says, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, and abides as a priest continually. Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. At the very least, he was a type of Christ. He points us to Jesus. He prefigures Jesus, and he may well be a theophany, an actual pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. It also says in Hebrews 7, 3, that he was a priest continually. Other priests would come and go. They would serve and be done. Melchizedek was a priest forever. Now back to Hebrews 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. Abraham brought a tithe to Melchizedek. A tithe is a tenth. That's actually what the word itself means. Tithe means tenth. I'm sometimes asked, Tom, do we have to tithe? And, And let me say, first of all, that's not a question you really want to ask the pastor. Unless you're ready for the answer. In reality, I think it's the wrong question. When you you say, do we have to tithe, you're asking the legal question. I think you should ask the moral question, which is, should we tithe? It's in the story of Melchizedek, here in Genesis 14, as a type of Jesus, perhaps even an Old Testament appearance of Jesus where the precedent of tithing is established. Genesis 14. Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils, a tenth of his increase, and the pattern is established here. Many books of the Bible refer to the tithe. Proverbs talks about giving off the top, giving of the first fruits of your increase. Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, gives amazing promises about what will happen if we tithe. I mean, listen to this. Malachi 3.10. Bring all your tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, God says, and prove me, test me, try me, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there may not be that there will not be room enough to receive it. But what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament command us to tithe? Well, Matthew 23, 23 is Jesus talking, and he says this. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not left the other undone. The very last part of what Jesus says there is a reference to not forsaking the tithe. So that's a New Testament reference to tithing. But I would be hard-pressed 
to brand that as a command for the church to tithe. So here's how I would answer your question. Do we, do we have to tithe? The answer to me is no. You don't have to do anything. But tithing seems to be the baseline in Scripture. Tithing is more of a, a reference point. It's, it's the minimum. The New Testament speaks of, of generosity. And it actually talks about giving cheerfully. And when you translate that word cheerfully uh, from the original language, it means hilariously. We're to be giving hilariously. The New Testament is all about faith. Everything we do, we do in faith. We don't do it because we're commanded to do it. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And our lives have been so changed and so impacted by Christ that we can do nothing else. Do you have to tithe? I don't know how to answer that except to say, no, you, you don't have to do anything. Let me ask it another way. Do you have to tithe to be saved? Again, I would say, no. But if you are saved, how can you not? If you're living a life of faith, which is the prerequisite of being saved, how can you not tithe? I told you, I'm the wrong guy to ask about this stuff. How can I make the claim of salvation if I haven't surrendered my finances to God? Now, I know that can be a process. The wallet is often the last thing to get saved. But we should not be giving out of compulsion. We should be giving out of a heart of love, a love that has impacted us to the point where more than anything else, we want people to be saved. So I give to, to sustain the local church. I want people in my hometown to know Jesus. I want there to be a gospel presence in the twin ports and the surrounding region. And I give to support missionaries around the world so that the gospel can be carried to the ends of the earth so that all will hear and all can know. A tithe is the minimum. I'll, I'll tell you this about the folks at Central Assembly. Most people around here are what I would call extravagant givers. They give over and above the tithe. We, we have people here who purpose to give 20% of their income. The tithe is the, is the baseline. They love Jesus so much, they give more. I, you know, I remember years ago seeing former NFL coach George Allen interviewed, who after he retired, he served as the chairman of the President's Council on Physical Fitness. And he was retired from coaching by this time, so he, he was a, an older man. And even at that time, he did 121 sit-ups a day. And the interviewer said, why 121? And George Allen said, because everybody does 100. I do 20 after that, and then I do one more. That's the attitude some people around here give with. Some people ask, do I have to tithe? Other people say, how much can I give? There's nothing more important than the work of the kingdom. The best investment you can make is to give your money to kingdom work. There is not a better place you can put your hard-earned money 
than into the kingdom of God. Do you have to tithe? It's an insulting question. You should be giving far more than a tithe. Forget the tithe. Here's how you should give. Give according to how you've been blessed. Just do that. Or give what God tells you to give. Give according to how you've been blessed or give what God tells you to give. Do either of those and I would bet that your giving far exceeds a tithe. And let me, let me throw in this little tidbit. Are you sorry you asked yet? Let me throw in this little tidbit. You will not tithe. You will not tithe if your life has not been changed by Jesus. Let, let's just face that fact. But I maintain, if he hasn't changed you, he hasn't saved you. My life has been so changed. And the lives of many others here have been so changed that we're looking for ways to give. And as it turns out, I'm ahead of the game by tithing. If I, if I drank and smoked and did drugs and gambled and partied, I would be spending way more than a tithe. A carton of cigarette, a carton of cigarettes costs $90. How about a night at the bar? or an evening at the casino, or a year's worth of lottery tickets. It doesn't take too long before you're well over 10% of your income, and I'm talking gross. I'm money ahead because Jesus changed me from the inside out. But some of you are still tithing to the world. Remember back in our story, Abraham ignored the king of Sodom, but he tithed till Melchizedek. Some of you are ignoring Melchizedek and you're tithing to the king of Sodom. Do I have to tithe? That's not my question. My question is, how much can I give? My question is, how much can I free up to give to kingdom work? God has been way too good to me to ask a question like, do I have to tithe? If you're giving because you think you have to, you're missing the point. Told you it was a bad question to ask a pastor. But no, you had to ask. And now back to Hebrews 7 about this mystery man, Melchizedek. Verse 15, it says, And yet it is evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, clearly speaking of Jesus. And that's why this stuff is so important. That's why this series is so important. It's teaching us something about Jesus. Verse 16, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, do I have to tithe carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, for he testifies thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is, listen to this, verse 18, for there is Verily, a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. Remember Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. Speaking of Jesus by the which we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? 
through Jesus. Verse 21, the Lord swear and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety, verse 22 says, of a better testament, a better covenant. Verse 23, and they truly were, there truly were many priests because they were not suffered or allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Jesus, pictured in Melchizedek because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens who needeth not daily as those other high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's sins. For this he did once when he offered himself. His broken body and his shed blood pictured by the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek to Abraham. Wow. Abraham presented Melchizedek with a tie, the tenth of, of all the items he had gathered, all the spoil. By this act, Abraham indicated he recognized Melchizedek as a priest who ranked higher than he spiritually. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a psalm referring to Jesus, the Messiah. And here Melchizedek is presented as a type of Christ. It's Psalm 110, verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. If the description in Hebrews is literal, then it's a clear reference to Christ. No earthly king remains a priest forever. No mere human is without father or mother. In Genesis, if Genesis 14 is a theophany, then God the Son appeared in the Old Testament to give Abraham his blessing, appearing as the king of righteousness and the king of peace and the mediator between God and man. If the description of Melchizedek is figurative, then the details of having no genealogy, no beginning, no end, and a ceaseless ministry are simply statements accentuating the mysterious nature of this person who met Abraham returning from his victory. If this is the case, the details of Melchizedek make a, are a type and a shadow of the coming Christ. Are Melchizedek and Jesus the same person? A case can be made either way. At the very least, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, prefiguring the Lord's ministry. But it's distinctly possible that Abraham, after his weary battle, met and gave honor to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Think about that. So as I close, Melchizedek, he's a sevenfold type of Christ. First, he was without genealogy. Jesus did not come into existence 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. I think that's part of the significance of this whole series is, is to remind us that Jesus had no beginning and he has no end. Number two, as far as the sevenfold type of Christ of Melchizedek, 
the sacrifice pictured by the bread and wine. When Jesus gathered the disciples for the Last Supper, he offered bread and wine, just like Melchizedek brought to Abraham. It pictured the sacrifice of the cross. It was a type of his body broken and his blood shed on our behalf. Number three, the endless priesthood. Jesus forever sits at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. He's a priest forever, the Bible says, after the order of Melchizedek. Number four, the dual office of priest and king. No one else had the dual roles. The king was not the priest, and the priest was not the king, except Melchizedek. He was king of Salem, and he was high priest to whom Abraham brought his offering. In the same way, Jesus is the priest who makes intercession for us. He's the one who made the sacrifice for our sin. But he is also king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is both priest and king. Number five, he's greater than Abraham. Melchizedek was so great, Abraham bestowed upon him a tenth of all the spoil. And Christ is greater than we are. And we are to pour out our praise and our blessing to him. And Hebrews 7.2 describes Melchizedek as number six, the king of righteousness. And remember, righteousness is what we need to be saved. And how do we attain righteousness? Only by faith in Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness. He's also number seven, the king of peace. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He's the king of peace. And Isaiah 9.6 says of Jesus, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And if you want the shalom of God, if you desire true peace, if you long for that peace that can only come from outside of yourself, from someone bigger than you, someone greater, like Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then you need the peace that can only come through Jesus. He's the only source of true peace. All other peace is fleeting and temporal. Jesus had no beginning and no end. He'll always be there. He's both king and priest. He he rules and reigns and, and he's the one who offers up the sacrifice on our behalf. He's the one to whom we owe not just a tithe but everything. A tithe is simply a token of the everything we owe him. He's the king of righteousness. Our only hope of righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and righteousness is exactly what we need to be saved. He's king of peace. And as we find ourselves under the protective covering of the blood of Jesus, we experience peace that we can find no other way. It's a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that does not come from the world. It's not a peace that the world can give. It's a peace that can only come from Jesus. It's a peace that transcends our circumstances and supersedes our trials. It's all pictured in Melchizedek. And it's all found in Jesus. 
The series has been about Jesus in the Old Testament. One of the things that I, I've hoped to accomplish is getting you to look for Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture, not just in the story of his birth, or not just in the, the story of when, when he trod the dirty streets of Galilee, but to look for Jesus throughout the annals of Scripture. Another aspect is to remind you that Jesus is outside of time, space, and matter. He's bigger than time. He's bigger than space, and he's bigger than matter. In fact, he created time, space, and matter. And if that's true, there is no problem that you have that's too big for the one greater than the world we live in, the space we occupy, and the time we are bound by. Jesus Christ is king of righteousness, which is what we need to get to heaven, and he's king of peace, which is what we so desperately long for in this world. And that's what he has to offer you today. So my encouragement to you as you sit in your living room, as you watch on your phone or you watch on your computer, and you contemplate the things that I've talked about today, my encouragement to you would be to look to Jesus. Think of the extent he went to to present this to us through a man as mysterious and as unique and as fascinating as Melchizedek. And throughout all the pages of the Old Testament, from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of Revelation, there's a scarlet thread of redemption. There's a crimson thread. It's all the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to the cross. The New Testament points back to the apex of history. When Jesus died on a cross to pay your penalty for your sin because he loves you so much. So my exhortation to you this morning would be to bow your head and to close your eyes. You don't have to understand all this to be the beneficiary of it. You just have to say, Jesus, it makes sense. I know in and of myself I fall short. I know I'm a sinner. And only Jesus, only the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin. The Bible speaks of repentance, and repentance is a turning from our sin. So it's, it's not just about praying a prayer. It's about a life changed for Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is to surrender it all, to give it all to him and to trust him for your salvation. Jesus is our only hope of righteousness. I'd like to pray with you as this series comes to a close. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for every drop of blood that you shed. And thank you, Lord, that your blood is enough for me. No matter how many times I've sinned, no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, your blood is enough. If I will but repent, if I will but confess my sins and lay claim to you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the provision that's available to us today and we receive it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, that's really the desire of your heart, 
then I would love it if you would make contact with me at Central Assembly. If you would find our number and call the church or, or maybe type in that, in that comment bar, say, I received Jesus today as my Lord and Savior, and we would make contact with you. But that's my hope and prayer, is that through these messages, through the series, that you would come to know Jesus as your Savior. God bless you.